Welcome to The Bibliophiles, the official podcast of Big Little Literature. I'm your host, Beth Stephens, and I'm here to provide real lit feels for real lit lovers. Hi, book lovers. Welcome to another episode of The Bibliophiles. We are recording once again during the quarantine of COVID-19, and today the book we're talking about I actually think is pretty relevant for this weird time we're in. You know, COVID-19 has reminded me, and I hope everybody else, that the world is a lot bigger than myself and that we really need to take care of each other and of the environment. And therefore, we're going to be discussing The Overstory by Richard Powers. And I'm excited to have uh, my guest with me today. He is a co-worker. I've known him for about a year and a half now, and I'm very lucky to have him as a friend as well. And he also really loves books. So please welcome to the podcast, Collier Gray. Hey guys. Like Beth mentioned, uh, we work together. We're also friends. Uh, also love books. The Overstory I loved, it's a uh, kind of an almost an epic novel. I love kind of long, um, slow burn novels. Um, anyways, I, I, The Overstory is phenomenal. I can't suggest it enough. I thought it was... It is one of my favorite books to date, for sure. Ooh, very high praise. Yeah, I mean, I'm a sucker for, like, the the long novels with, like, a consistent theme throughout. And, like, for me, the overstory um, was, like, an absolute masterwork. I also, I like short stories a lot. And for those of you that haven't read it, the whole kind of first third of the book is... Uh, almost like vignettes, almost like novellas introducing each of the main characters. And I don't know, I think it was structured so beautifully because, I mean, the only common theme between each of the sort of initial chapters in the first sort of introductory section, they seem like they don't relate at all other than like a weird sort of obsession and mentioning of trees And then it sort of all slowly comes together, uh, sort of culminating at the end of the book. And I think, you know, just from a like a language perspective and like a a structuring of the narrative, I I thought it was, you know, masterful. So I want to take a couple of steps back because I think it's interesting that you you said you like both short stories and long sweeping novels, because I tend to stray away from those kind. I don't really enjoy short stories that much. And then long novels. I just have a thing. I don't know. I feel like when authors write super long novels, they're trying to prove a point and that like, if it's a bigger book, it's going to be more profound. But I actually think this one, which was a little bit over, I think 500 pages, it it was a little long for me, but at the same time, I I still really enjoyed it. Um, I gave it four flames on a scale of one to five. And so it is, so let's give a quick overview of the book. Um, I called it environmental fiction. Is that even a genre? I don't know. Uh, yeah, I think it is. Okay. Um, maybe a new genre, but yeah, I think, I think that, that counts. So I'm not just making Activ- things up. Activist fiction. Okay, that sounds better. Activist fiction. So it covers nine characters who at the beginning of the book, they don't know each other. And as Collier said, it's it's like little vignettes, it's little short stories introducing them. And then along the way, they somehow become connected. Um, some of these characters meet in real life, some of them are connected through books or through games. But all nine of them 
start to discover the biological and evolutionary traits of trees and how humans are just like depleting the trees at unprecedented, unprecedented rates and how it's really affecting the environment. And all nine of these people just believe come to love the environment and they want to be activists and help out. So that's kind of the, the main summary of the story. Did I miss anything? No, I mean, I think that, 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 that sums it up nicely. It, 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 I guess to add to the synopsis, it goes from at first you're kind of like, oh, what's going on here? To like on the last page of the book, I almost felt like, oh my God, we've got an environmental catastrophe on our hands, which I think, you know, most people kind of realize, but it, it somehow made it feel more palpable. Well, and that's why, so I, I gave the book Four Flames. There were definitely parts that I was, like, the language is very deep and philosophical and at parts that lost me because that's just not who I am. But the reason I gave it Four Flames is because, like, I really think this book changed my life and it made me, and I wrote this in my review, that, like, I've become more environmental friendly since reading this book. And if a book can have that kind of impact, that says a lot about the writing. Totally. I mean... The first chapter, which introduces one of the main characters, his name's Nick, uh, in broad strokes, I mean, basically covers his family's sort of connection to this massive chestnut tree that was planted way outside the natural chestnut range. I mean, as Nick's sort of ancestors or family migrated to the U.S. and then eventually migrated to Iowa. Um, and in that chapter, they talk about the, the great chestnut blight in the United States. So in the eastern United States, we used to have these massive chestnut forests. And then uh, a Asian beetle um, that, it, that fed on sort of Asian chestnut trees got imported to the U.S. Long story short, led to the, the, a blight that destroyed all of the East Coast forests. And like halfway through that first chapter, I was like uh, frantically Googling the chestnut blight in the United States and felt very like personally attached to the success or revitalization of the chestnut tree. I mean like 20 or 30 pages in. So it, it, the first chapter is a good litmus test for if you, if you'd like the book, I think. Uh, yeah, I definitely agree from the get go. I mean, he's, he's making really powerful statements in his writing. Um, and actually my favorite part of the book was how he's, how Richard Powers is really proving how interconnected we are among everyone. So not just the people in our inner circle that we see every day, but we are literally all connected and we're all connected to this earth too. And it's, it's our job to take care of it. It's been here much longer than us. And we as humans think we have all of these rights to do things to, to the trees, to the planet. And, you know, like I said, it, it changed my life and made me want to become more green. And I've, it made me also reconcile or like realize that I'm not innocent in any of this. I've contributed to the problems just as much as anybody else has, but I can also help fix the problem too. Totally. And I mean, two things on that, like you mentioned kind of how the length of the book is and sort of the eloquence of the language. I think one of the, brilliant things Powers did and sort of a consistent theme he wove throughout was he's almost telling the story from the time scale of a tree. So like trees grow much slower and live much longer than us. And so thus, like if you want to consider a tree, a character, the tree uh, sees the destruction of the environment much more clearly than we might, because somebody throws a piece of trash on the ground you don't immediately see the impact but over time it has like horrible ramifications and 
was thinking about that. So I just drove across the country to my home in Texas uh, to, to get away from the coronavirus last week. Oh my God, did you drive from New York to Texas? I did. Oh. I did. It's a long drive. How, how was it? So it, it, was, uh, it was a good drive. I mean, but um, one thing you get driving west to east, east to west rather, is sort of a changing environment as you go. I was listening to this book about the American West, and they're talking about Kit Carson, who's like a famous frontiersman and trapper and guide. And he, in his lifetime, noticed how much the environment changed in the sort of frontier West, um, just because the amount of people that moved. I mean, the, the amount of game that was there was different. The forest totally changed because as people came, they cut things down and the environment changed. So I guess it's, it is a real-life example of what the book is trying to personify. It, it is slow, but the impact is great, and the effort to fix it becomes greater and is equally slow. So I think that's some of the, the point Powers is trying to make. And I think that's why with this one, I yeah, at parts I was like, all right, let's pick it up, let's get to the end. But overall, like I was okay with how many pages were in this book and the pace of it because there there was a reason behind it. Like it's a clear analogy of what he's trying to do. And as a writer, he like he uses the entire repertoire of writer tricks, like analogy, imagery, repetition, personification. He's using it all, but I think he's using it very skillfully so that it's not it's not explicit it's not like every page you're like okay he's got personification to the max on this one he uses them really strategically totally and the characters i think the introduction of the characters in the beginning makes that link clear for all of them i think like with the slow change you basically all the characters are introduced when they're young when they're kids and it tracks I mean, in my mind, at least, each of the main characters, how they view the changing environment throughout the story, going from sort of innocent and they see the trees as a thing they love or a thing that saved them or a childhood sort of fondness to sort of a desperation in the middle and then kind of almost like an acceptance or they have their final path on how they're going to handle the, um, the changing of the environment at the end. And some are super self-sacrificial. Others, I'm thinking about like Mimi Ma, like they call her Mulberry a lot in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the great things there is they introduce these. So for those who haven't read it, she is a um, the son of a Chinese immigrant who fled communist China and brought these sort of uh, ancestral um, heirlooms with her. And she ends up with this ring and this scroll that are tied to these three wise men, these Buddhist wise men, who uh, they've basically made peace with the world. And I don't know, it's interesting how she goes from a a hard-driving engineer to an environmental radical to at the end of the story, at the end of the book, she's sitting in the grass thinking about everybody on their phone and, and how the world, nobody's paying attention to the environment around her. And she finds like almost an acceptance. Like she's doing what she can and that's all she can do, which is interesting. And just to prove how Collier is a much deeper person than I am. Um, I had to ask him after I finished the book, well, what the hell happened at the end? Cause I was very confused. So thank you for explaining that to me. <laughs> Of course. Um, yeah, I've got theories. All the characters, all the endings. Uh, it's how it's all how they find their peace with uh, basically humankind being 
completely culpable in the destruction of the earth, which um, was good. I think is somebody that periodically has sort of existential angst about are we destroying the world? It it almost provides a model. Um, you know, you do what you can. You find what you can to do. You do as much as you can, but you can't let it totally consume you. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I guess some of the characters they do feel that way, but. Did you have a favorite character? I'm terrible with names, and you're going to have to help me here. <laughs> uh, the woman who's the, the botanist. Oh, yeah. I don't remember her name either. She was – I loved her, though. She was very much her own person. Um, I'm Googling it right now. <laughs> uh, Dr. Patricia Westerford. Yes. Yeah. I, I mean, I liked her because it, she's introduced – she was kind of a social outcast that always loved trees – she had this, it wasn't a childish understanding of trees. I mean, it was very much, it was almost like a deep philosophical understanding of trees. I think in, in her introductory chapter, her big revelation is trees create something out of nothing. Uh, and they are a miracle and they create this wonderful environment um, beneath their feet that's totally interconnected and way more complicated and interesting than anything humans ever produce when they cut down trees. Um, and you know, it was a little bit profound that her view is basically that uh, we're not killing the environment. We're killing ourselves. Like we are all, that is the overstory, if you will, taking from the story of the novel, we're all connected. Um, trees are connected in her chapters. These language, the understory a lot. Um, Trees are connected to the fungi that they help feed, and the fungi help feed them, and then that creates a, a thriving sort of brooks and streams and teeming with life. Um, and her view is basically, well, if we kill this, we kill ourselves. So we're all in it together. It's not us versus the trees, the trees versus us. So I, you know, I'm going to give a spoiler away here. Um, at the end of the book, she ends up committing suicide. Do you feel like she fulfilled her destiny? by doing that? Or what do you think was going through her mind when that happened? You know, I think a quote that she uses a lot in the story is like the, the thing that you can do to restore nature to itself is do nothing and do it for a shorter time than you think. I think that she was almost living one with nature for a lot of the book, and she felt she couldn't do that anymore. And maybe it's the existential angst, but I think more than anything, she was providing, trying to provide an example to um, to the rest of the world. And to build on best spoiler, the way that Patricia kills herself is like very publicly at a conference um, in front of sort of the best and brightest minds of the day, trying to figure out what to do about the environment. And they pose it as a fix-up project. And I think that the point that she was trying to make was, no, this isn't a fix-up project. This is an all-or-nothing project. This is a drop what you're doing and go do it. She definitely, She's definitely a martyr, though. Yeah, and I, I think her story, and not necessarily her, her ending, but if you think about her in relation to what's happening in the world today of, you know, the less you do for a longer period of time, the more impact you'll have. I mean, look at, I mean, I keep seeing all these pictures of, like, the water in Venice and how much cleaner it is because people have just, they've been forced to, to take a step back from their daily lives and look at the impact that that can have. That's actually an incredible example. We're living it right now. And it's not just Venice. I mean, it's everywhere. The mm-hmm. 
economic impact and or the environmental impact in China of the coronavirus has been crazy. Uh, I saw some article that said in in Wuhan for the first time in ages they had blue sky. Normally they've got so much smog they don't get any blue sky. Mm-hmm. Like the CO two output is drastically reduced, which is a funny example. Yeah, but, um, it's almost if we if we t- taught the if we treated the environmental crisis like we're treating this crisis, you know, we can do something. It is within our power still. And I think her, her example, obviously, of, of what she does to do more is definitely to the extreme. But her character from start to finish, I think, is just a great example of what we can do to help out more. Totally. Like I was saying, I mean, with all the characters, I think it's it's maybe not quite as dramatic as... Dr. Westerford's what she did, but I think the end of the story is they're each settling on, this is what I can do. Maybe the only other martyr there is Adam Apich, who's a little bit of an odd character, but um, through the arc of the story, he's probably the least involved environmentally, but Mm -hmm. at the end, he, and spoiler alert, he takes the fall for an environmental crime some of the main characters committed. And he does so really overtly and almost doesn't defend himself uh, because he's a psychologist. And his view is, well, people don't believe in numbers and facts. People believe a good story. Which is very true. Yeah. And so, I mean, he put his skill set to use. He did his best to sacrifice his family life and his free life to be a martyr so that people would follow in their example in their own way and do something about it. Yeah, I think he had the the most interesting character arc and definitely had the most redemption by the end. I like I think we were talking when I was about halfway through it and I couldn't stop complaining about him as a character cuz he was just so annoying and rude and almost like he was so centered and focused on himself that he didn't really care about others and that just bothered me so much but by the end you can tell that he has he's found his greater purpose and how and how to help. Yeah, and I mean, I think almost, I, t- I agree with you, I think almost what Powers was trying to do with that was say, look, it, it, all the characters are so different, and they all have such different backstories, but at the end of the day, they're all able to do something about the crisis in their own way, right. and maybe that's what makes them redemptive. Mm-hmm. Like, we're, we're, all, we're all very different, but we're all still connected, and we all serve some kind of purpose. Yeah. I'm curious what you think, Beth. Though, so one of the characters, he's probably the only that doesn't, only character that doesn't fall into that is Doug, like Douglas Fir, because he kind of he goes back on his team of environmentalists at the end and almost betrays them. I, I wonder what you think about that. He seems to be the biggest outlier of all the main characters. Oh, that's a tough question. I don't really know if I if I can answer that fully, but I I think he was. I don't know if he was trying to, to make up for any harm that they may have caused in the in the past as as activists, but I don't know if he fully came to realize his purpose and really wanted to help the environment. Um, I don't know. I was a little confused by his storyline because at the at the beginning he was so passionate about everything he was getting involved with, and then it's almost like he you know he took a reversal at the end um, and kind of gave up on that. Yeah, and I don't know, the interest, his character arc is interesting, too. I mean, he was a veteran, and his sort of revelation 
uh, environmental revelation was when he was he was flying. He's in Vietnam and had to bail out of a plane to save his compatriots, and he landed in a tree that saved his life. So he, then he went from government employee to sort of fringe character planning fir trees, and that was sort of his. He he wanted to save the world, and that's how he was going to do it. And then kind of went off the grid for a while. Um, and then I think like when he reconnected with the government, maybe he was a, I don't know, a government man. The other interesting thing about his introduction, though, was it, it seemed to be based on the prison Stanford experiment. Like he was put in a prison uh, as an, a psychological experiment. Mm-hmm. And that was imprinted on him through the entire, the entire story. Um and he basically flipped on Adam to avoid going back to prison, and Adam kind of accepted it where he couldn't. But I, I don't have – I'm, I'm kind of the same way. I didn't really know what to make of his character because he seemed to be almost the staunchest rebel of the bunch for most of the book. Yeah, and I don't feel – because there were a couple of others where I feel like they had kind of accepted the fate almost at the end, regardless if that means like they they don't want to be as involved or what. But his – it wasn't like he accepted it, but it was like he was still walking backwards. Yeah, I mean, and maybe, maybe the message there is even if you're – like you can be a radical. So he was a radical for so much of the book, but then um, – at the end, he was the kind of the least effective of the bunch. So maybe there's something there on that. Mm-hmm. I do want to touch on real quick the the actual language that uh, Richard Powers uses. I mean, he is some of these scenes in the book were so beautiful, and the way he talks about trees and the environment. I mean, it's it, that's exactly how our environment is, and the the fact that he could get all of that across, I thought it was it was it really shines on on his talent as a writer. Oh, yeah. I mean, beautiful language, sort of um, very artful, long paragraphs. Uh, and then some of the repeated themes as well, uh, he, he wove in really well. Like I mentioned before, the the overstory, like the, the title of the book was kind of we're all connected. Mm-hmm. But then in some of the chapters, for example, he constantly is mentioning the understory, like the understory of trees. Which I guess is a biological term, kind of referring to the community of life or the the uh, environment that exists around a forest. So like the understory is everything that's happening below the canopy. Yeah, right. I, so I actually had to look that up because I, I was like, that, this feels like a term, but I don't know what it is. And then once I realized what it was, I thought it was so powerful that – and it was like a very pointed move on his part to take – you know, this repetition of understory where it's like, it kind of seems like this is the background of our lives, but in reality, like this is the story of our lives and it's not the background at all. Completely. I mean, it's a total metaphor. Mm -hmm. Um, Like the understory and, and like the news and stuff is the arguing over a super specific environmental issue, like environment versus economy, or is this really doing anything? And well, when we really look at the numbers on this, we don't think it's that effective, which I guess the point he that, that, that he he's trying to make in the book is that, all right, it's not the understory. It's not the details. It's how they all fit together. Mm-hmm. So you got to focus on the big picture. So switching gears a little bit, I want to talk, Collier, about, about your general reading preferences. Like what, what kind of books do you usually uh, go toward? 
Um, I try. I love novels. Like novels are my go-to. Like Faulkner is probably one of my favorite authors. Sometimes it's a little bit dense, but I, I like to alternate between fiction and nonfiction as well, just to kind of and get, keep a little variety going. Yeah. Um, so, so what are you reading right now? Right now, I am listening to a book on tape and reading a book. The book I'm listening to on tape, which I was listening to on the drive, is called Blood and Thunder, and it is a chronicle of the American West. So, like, all the kind of great characters and manifest destiny and how that changed the country, which is kind of interesting. Once you open your eyes, you start to see the environmental piece all over the place. Because some of what they talk about is um, the changing environment. But then I'm also reading a novel that's the, it's a historical fiction based on the event that inspired Moby Dick, basically a whale hunt gone wrong, where the crew of the ship was stranded in South America and they're kind of epic journey home. Ooh, what's that called? It is called, really bad with names, (laughs) The Essex. Ooh, well, when we are finally back in the office together, I'm going to have to borrow that from you because that sounds really interesting. Absolutely. It's a good one. Cool. Well, thank you so much for coming on The Bibliophiles. This was a great conversation. I mean, I think we could talk about the overstory for hours because there's just so much to say about this book. Oh, my God. You pick up a page and you can unpack it for hours. (laughs) Awesome. Well, I hope you come back to The Bibliophiles. We love to talk about books, so why not do it on a podcast? Of course. Looking forward to it. All right. Thanks, Collier. We'll see you next time, guys. Have a good one, Beth. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of The Bibliophiles. If you want more, be sure to check out my blog, Big Little Literature. If you want to hear today's music from Evan Schaefer, check him out at soundcloud.com slash evanschaefer. See you next time.